Hey, hello, hello, everybody. I'm back. Uh, this is a weekend drop, which is, if you're new here, every weekend I try to drop a little bit of my podcast appearances from other podcasts, uh, mostly to re-syndicate in case you missed it um, and to save them in case the podcast goes away. Uh, this one comes from January, so uh, I can't believe it's October already. Um, but uh, it's still kind of evergreen. It's about developer relations and developer career advice. I did it with Cloudcast, which is one of the more enterprisey tech podcasts that I do listen to and enjoy because they have a really good news recap. And even though some of the parts may not be that relatable, I think uh, if you're interested in DevRel, if you're interested in career advice, uh, I talk a little bit about Temporal as well. Uh, I think this is a good place to learn about it. So uh, enjoy. Um, Aaron, the developer space is, is really broad. Um, oftentimes, it's, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our head around it. You know, when you think about this space, you know, what's interesting to developers? What's new for developers? Like, what are some of the, the big things that come to mind for you? Yeah, I, the, the single biggest thing is just this explosion of DevRel just as both a, a, a career progression um, as well as supply and demand, right? Like if you look back at some of the cloud news of the week, right, some of the surveys that that we've highlighted in cloud news of the week, just the ability to fill the roles and the explosion of this um, is, I think, so fascinating. Um, and that's why we brought our guest on today. Yeah, yeah. So very, very excited. You know, when it, 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 one of the challenging things around the developer space is, like I mentioned, that it's so broad. Um, and, and so, you know, going off and saying, like, who can we talk to to really help us get perspective sometimes is challenging. But this week, we're, we're very, very lucky. Um, Sean Wang, who is head of developer experience at Temporal, but also uh, we're going to dive into a lot of the other things he does to work with a ton, a ton of developers. Sean, really excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Cloudcast. Really excited to be on. I have been listening for a while, and so was very honored to be invited. Yeah, we. Um, I got to know you uh, probably about a year ago, and, and, and maybe not so much face-to-face, but um, you made a few comments about some of the shows we had done. And I was like, okay, who is that guy? Um, you know, started <laughs> digging through your Twitter feed, lots of interesting stuff. And then I started looking at kind of all the things that you do with communities, with the books, with, you know, all the different places you've worked. And I was like... I got to get him on the show at some point because he touches so many things that that are interesting to developers, careers and languages and frameworks and all kinds of stuff. Um, for anybody who uh, doesn't know you or hasn't sort of seen the work you've done, give us a little bit of your background. Uh, you know, where have you been? What do you work on? What really keeps you interested? Yeah, sure. Um, it's funny because I don't do that consciously. I just kind of follow my interests and it happens to line up with other people's interests. Um, So I'm Sean. I originally am from Singapore and I moved to the U.S. for a totally different career. I studied finance and then went went and started a a whole career in finance and investment banking and hedge funds, Uh, but then changed careers to tech Uh, at the age of 30. We can have a whole conversation about that one (laughs) Um, and moved mostly uh, from the front end to the back end. So I did front end at Two Sigma, and then I did serverless and and a bit of Jamstack stuff at Netlify. And then I moved to AWS, where I got more involved in API Gateway and um, uh, uh, AppSync and AWS Amplify. Uh, And then most recently, I joined Temporal as head of developer experience. And and Temporal is an entirely back-end distributed system framework that uh, I'm having a lot of fun digging into. Uh, the entire time I've been sort of right practicing this principle that I call learning in public, which has been a huge help to my career. Um, 
the my last three jobs have been entirely originated or established through blog posts or tweets of mine or talks that I've done out in public. And I strongly believe in basically writing down your ideas and your uh, your advice as you go along because you don't want to wait till you've made it like 30 years from now because there's a lot of narrative bias uh, in that. I'd much rather engage with people as I grow and I think that we can all have a positive sum outlook on our, our, our careers. Yeah. yeah. And go and Sean, the other thing I would add to it too is you're very well known for the coding career handbook to kind of dovetail onto that as well. And so there is, as Brian mentioned, there's so many options out there and not just, you know, the path you took, but tell us a little bit about expand on that, but then also expand on what are some of the options that are out there. If somebody is asking you, how do you frame these conversations on where to even get started? Uh, in your tech career? Yes. Uh, is, that, is that what you're going for? Okay. So yes. Yeah, I generally tell people to just, you know, go through their the standard learning paths. Like, mostly for me, the Coding Career Handbook, which, by the way, originally it was supposed to be called Cracking the Coding Career after Cracking the Coding Interview, which kind of emphasizes the extreme emphasis in, in terms of uh, the book industry on the interview. Uh, but once you get the job, nobody tells you what to do after you get the job, right? And that's actually the hard part. <laughs> you have to yes. learn to work with others and and uh, you know position yourself for long term career growth. So that's the thing I wanted to tackle, and specifically the the unmet need that I thought I perceived in the market was that everyone was joining and learning to code, and there are a lot of boot camps and advice and colleges and whatever out there for you to help to learn to code, and probably you can get your first job that way, but most companies want to hire seniors. So who's out there training the juniors and getting them to, into seniors? And so I really wanted to specifically target that audience because I had made that transition not too recently, not too, well, kind of recently myself. And so I wanted to write down advice from myself and uh, 15 other, 1,500 other resources that I had accumulated along the way. So basically it's the missing manual to your coding career. So, um, where do you, where should you start? Um, I guess you know a resource like mine or some other collection of advice from other people, uh, because I think it's really important that you understand that a lot of workplaces, you know, you get assigned a buddy, you get assigned a mentor somewhere. You're kind of rolling the dice on whether or not they're a good one. Um, and so the best way to optimize your chances early on is to really just do a broad search and look for advice and mentors that you resonate with. Um, and sometimes that involves going out there on, on, online and looking for, you know, talks or books like mine to, to get started. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you find, you know, a lot of times, um, maybe not specifically in the, in the coder community, but there'll be, you know, there'll be these assessment things that people do. So whether it's, you know, like a Myers-Briggs or something else where, you know, it comes back and it kind of says, Hey, for, the kind of things that that you seem to have in your personality, and your personality could be introvert or extrovert. It could be you know type A. It could be you you uh, you're more creative. You're more analytical. Have you found um, you know in in talking to people and kind of going through job uh, hunts yourself or talking to you know all these people in the community like that? There's certain personality traits or things that that might lend you to be more of a, a front end developer versus a back end or you know, do you find people are like, look, I just want to make the most money. So whatever that means, I'm willing to learn that. Like, like how have you sort of found some of that shakes out um, over time? Oh, this is fascinating. So 
the first response I want to give is that I had, I don't actually have a very good opinion of a lot of the personality tests out there. Um, so, for example, MBTI is very volatile, right? Score one point the wrong way and you're suddenly a totally different category, which is why a lot of psychologists now prefer the big five tests, uh, also called the ocean tests. But um, if you look at Shopify, for example, they tend to prioritize a different kind of personality test called the Enneagram. All of this is essentially astrology for nerds. Like, I don't actually believe that you can <laughs> categorize the, the vast diversity of humanity into like, oh, four neat categories or 16 or 13. I don't care what the number is. That's just small because it fits in your typology of, of things, but it actually doesn't really describe in specific situations what you should be doing with your life. Um that's it. You know, I, I can I can give like some some thoughts, but like I'm definitely not an expert because I'm biased by the people that I've met and I've seen. And I, you know, quite honestly, like a lot of people can make money and be successful in a lot of different ways. And um, that's that's the joy of life. You know that uh, there, there's there's no one archetype or stereotype that that just does uh, that thing. Um, I will say that I think. Uh, the, there are more sort of product-minded or user-minded developers who, who probably will gra gravitate more towards the front end. And then there are more sort of machine or logic or, or detail-oriented people who might graduate more towards the, the back end. Um, so I have this concept in my book called the coding career layers, where I try to map uh, you know, all the software jobs in the world going from machine all the way to end user. Um, how do you sort of stack rank them between infrastructure devs to um, platform devs to people who work on languages to people who work on embedded systems to people who even code as no code or low code developers? And I think if you have an overall organizing principle of like, here's where I am in the stack and because, and this is a sweet spot for me because uh, this is the part I care most about, then you're probably more likely to have success in your career. And I definitely believe that um, there is, you can be, you can be a millionaire in all sorts, all layers of the stack. Um, you may, you may need to interview differently, or you may need to learn differently based on the, the, the part of the stack that you're targeting. Um, but I have a very, very expansive view of what the software career can be because I, I personally have moved around so much. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. well, Sean, I, I, mean, I can completely see that. Go I, ahead. You and I can totally relate to that. We've been, we've been all yeah. over the place. So it's good. It's good to hear. It's not just sort of uh, more from the infrastructure. It's all over the place. That's great. And, and Sean, uh, I will say one thing. Good. Oh, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll just throw this in there for, for a bit of controversy because people will need good audio, right? You don't you don't need to <laughs> agree all the time. Um, so, you know, there's the thesis I've been working on called the front-end ceiling, which is that front-end developers, 9 out of 10 of VPs of Eng or CTOs are back-end developers. So there's a permeable ceiling, but there is a statistical ceiling that front-end developers just never get to VP of Eng uh, for whatever reason. We should talk about it because... This affects your career choice if you if you aspire to some kind of tech leadership, if you aspire to be CTO. Yes, you can make it, but statistically, you have a really, really, really poor shot compared to the backend devs. Yeah, I think the only thing, I don't want to get us too too far off topic because, uh, but I, I think the, the flip side to that though is, you know, you look at some of the the companies out there that are they're doing really well um, that were sort of product led founders. So Airbnb is sort of famous for that now. Snapchat, mm -hmm. a few of the others like. Their folks are very famously product centric, right? So I, you're, I think you're right. Like at some point, you may completely hit a, a, a stage from a technical career, but you may also realize that, like, if you're very product driven, maybe as a someone with front end experience, like 
your jump may not just be to stay purely in the technical track. It might be to go, hey, Correct. the product is the product. thing our customers deal with. Maybe I should be, you know, in product management and leadership and whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah. It's, it's it's a good yeah. it's a good conversation to have. Um, <laughs> and, and Sean, the other thing we've used on the the show in the past too is this just this concept too of yeah, you, you have to funnel up, and it kind of. Uh, adds on to your point of like, okay, if you're funneling up in a role, there's less and less opportunities. And statistically, what is the career path to get you to get you to those? So that's fascinating. But I'll also say, yeah, the kind of the previous, you know, when, when Brian and I were both kind of chuckling about, you know, the, the many career paths and, and, and focal points, if you will, like at some point, I think developers like any engineers and like Brian and I both in our careers, you you just kind of get bored you know, working on the same things, <laughs> you know, and, and so you want to go do something different. And sometimes it's not necessarily up. Sometimes it's lateral and sideways as well. And so like right now, it seems like we're in, I don't know, some big changes. And and what should folks think about as they transition either up or sideways? Oh, wow. That's a Perfectly executed segue, by the way. I saw that. Oh, thank you. I saw I saw it like next topic and then you kind of executed that. Okay, so I thought you were talking about industry changes, but it's, it seems like you're really interested in sort of what people can do to prep their careers for career change. And that's something I, I have some personal experience with. Honestly, like I always think about things in terms of the concept of anti-fragility, if you've come across it from uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb. Because if you base your entire identity or brand on one technology or one language or one part of the stack, then you're very inflexible. I mean, you may be an expert in that thing, but um, you you kind of lose credibility or you take a few steps back when you need to change or when you feel, you know, you get bored, you want to broaden out. Um, so honestly, like the most anti-fragile position to be in is to have the ability, is to just have demonstrable ability that you just learn things very well. Um, and that's a very vague thing to to prove. You can't really prove that in an interview, but you can kind of prove that through a track record of being able to pick up a, a bunch of things and, and being able to explain it from first principles, being able to, to run up the learning curve very quickly, for example, by building mini clones of it or whatever, right? You know, how, however the, the ways that you learn of that. Um, I just think about skills in terms of, is this skill fragile or anti-fragile? Yeah, that's, that's what, fair. What about, and I think that's fair. I think that's, I think a lot of us think about that, at least especially as sometimes you get a little older in your career, you're kind of going, okay, I've been through some of those changes. I've done this a couple of times. Um, you know, you start figuring out where you have experience. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. What about on the, on the side of, obviously you're, you've been involved with, uh, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, you've been involved with, with NetLafly and AWS and, and, and now Temporal and a lot of places where you've seen sort of both sides of the technology. Where are you seeing some of the trends, um, especially from a, you know, where developers are sort of showing new interest or, uh, you know, some problem spaces where you're like, okay, you know, this is sort of shift in the industry. Where are some of the, on the technology side, maybe less the career side that you're seeing uh, things being interesting for developers or changing for developers. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I was thinking about this cause you know, this is like kind of the, the start of the year outlook podcast episode. Yeah. Um, so I had five topics that I've laid out here and we can kind of go into as much or as little detail as you want. Sure. Um, so it's, it's cloud distros, self-provisioning runtimes, workflow engines, monorepos, and then video in developer relations. These, there's no, there's no particular order. I just like these are the first five I thought of. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you mean by cloud repos? So, 
cloud distros. Yeah, yeah. That, so that was actually the first I was going to start talking about. So I worked at Netlify, right, which is a cloud hosting company that it coined the Jamstack, and it's been very successful. It went from, I think when I joined, it was like 200,000 developers to now it's over 2 million developers, which is ridiculous considering the, the time frame uh, that, that we joined them at. And now they're a unicorn, which again, I also never thought I would see the day <laughs> they're, they're, they became a unicorn. Um, but they essentially resell AWS services, right? They're a layer on top of AWS. Can't like, why can't AWS just, you know, uh, destroy them? And I, I was just noticing, like, there's all these people building second layer clouds is, is the other term for it. I prefer cloud distros because the term second layer clouds implies the existence of the third and fourth layer and when, where does it end? Uh, but really, this is just a custom distribution of AWS for a specific audience. And for Nullify, it is a custom distribution of AWS for front-end developers, right, that that. Uh, we do all the DevOps for you so that you don't have to think about it. You just commit to Git and we do the rest. Uh, and I think that's a very tight abstraction that has, has quite honestly, made become a billion-dollar idea, which uh, I think it's amazing. And so this idea of cloud distros and, and people building other distributions for other purposes, like I always talk about Fly.io uh, for edge computing. I always talk about Cloudflare as, as a sort of serverless edge-native uh, cloud distro as well. Um, and then uh, also render.com and, and other um, other clouds kind of building on top of it, of, of sort of the baseline clouds. I think this is an interesting phenomenon and probably the cutting edge of innovation if you are into anything DevOps or anything where, you know, you want to solve that deployment problem for people. Yeah, I, I think we, I think we, we yeah I think we've hit on that before. I hadn't hadn't thought about it in the, in the context of, of cloud distros, but but you're right, they are they basically are going after the the part of the market that that AWS has never really tried to do, which is um, I mean they, they've allowed people to build up on on top of them obviously before, but but now we're seeing this sort of you know other people are defining the developer experience on top of you know this place that that. Amazon probably years ago thought, look, well, we'll also define that as well as doing the infrastructure. So yeah, I think um, that's a that's a really fascinating space to to sort of see where it evolves, and it it does have really interesting long term implications of you know how much does that commoditize what's underneath it, and if you if you never kind of wrap your head around you know what's what what the actual end user experience is, you know how vulnerable do you make yourself? So yeah, that's probably a topic we should <laughs> dig into more and more going forward. Um, yeah. I actually, I actually, you know, I, I mentioned Cloudflare in there, but actually, that's the one new sort of layer one cloud that uh, I should not name as a cloud distro because they are building their own cloud right. with every single point of presence. And I had a, one of my most successful blog posts of last year was um, how Cloudflare is playing Go while AWS is playing chess, and people really liked that analogy. I had senior management in in Cloudflare telling me like, "Yep, yep, that's <laughs> this is exactly on point." <laughs> yeah, so and, they're, and they're they're doing it. GitHub's doing it as well. And I don't I don't know where you'd put GitHub in the. Are they their own cloud? Are they yeah, kind of tier one, tier two? But they're they're kind of following a similar model too. Uh, Aaron, were you, you going to say something? Tell us a yeah. little bit more, too. I really like that. I want to d- deep dive into this one, too, the, the idea of the workflow engines as well. You, you, yeah, in, in okay. kind of the five categories there. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by workflow engines, please. Yeah. Um, so I never knew of this category, but I definitely felt the pain. Every single time that you needed to do long-running work, um, and it's not just sort of video processing. It could be like working, building like a CI/CD system. It could be doing something like a long-running trip, for example, 
uh, one of my favorite examples is the Amazon one-click purchase, right? That um, you want to turn things, turn like a synchronous operation, like adding things to cart and then going to the cart and then uh, doing it, doing a full checkout into a one-click buy with a timeout, right? So you actually have, you actually have sort of have to store something in a uh, store the state of the purchase in a queue, and then if a user you know, decides to cancel their one-click buy, then then you let them cancel it. If not, that timer has the timer has to be set to uh, push it forward. Um, turning synchronous things into asynchronous actually permeates a lot of things that we do when we code for the real world in, in sort of business logic. Um, and there's a you know, it, it led me down this path of like, okay, what do we not do well in serverless? Uh, and this is this is what I was exploring at AWS. Like I was essentially at Netlify and AWS, I was a advocate for the serverless ecosystem and the, and the future of serverless. What what serverless is really horrible at is long running jobs. Like you know, the moment you need to last longer than quite honestly a few seconds, um, you're in a whole different category of applications, uh, and that's. The category and that's the domain of workflow engines, and I'm really seeing that uh, rising is uh, in popularity. That's why I personally left AWS uh, and left a lot of money on the table at AWS to join Temporal as a startup, uh, because I think that uh, this is a growing category, and it you know so far in 2021 it uh, has played out that way. Um, I think so. First of all, you want to do you want to call the number of APIs that you call is always increasing. Like, you know, the, the, the vendors that you're uh, signing up for because they all are specialists in their own situations. But every single time you call an API, your the likelihood of failure from whatever thing, like network uh, failures or outages from, from them, or outages from your side, whatever, um, the probability of failure, failure just exponentially multiplies. So you need a reliability system. You need timeouts, you need retries, and you need to just standardize it across your entire stack. Um, then you need to orchestrate your microservices internally with the, own, with the systems that, that you own. Um, and you need to have um, you know, really good tooling for observability across all, all of these systems. And you need to have uh, uh, like a recovery strategy if any part of your system goes down. And then finally, like what I'm really excited about, workflow engines also help you basically have durable asynchronous programming. Like imagine if I could implement a monthly billing subscription with just an infinite loop. Like I'll say while true, and I'll just charge charge an account and then sleep for 30 days. And why can I sleep for 30 days? Is because that timer is just set durably inside of my programming environment. And I just... Uh, when I saw something like that in a workflow engine like Temporal, there are others, by the way, that you know, there's a long history of workflow engines out there. But Temporal is the one that does it as code, in idiomatic code that I, as a developer, can really interpret and use all my familiar tooling to to do to to write software with. Um, that really clicked for me, and I think it's clicking for a lot of people as well. I want to hit on one last, and you, you, you put a number of topics in there. We're going to leave those in the show notes. People will be able to, to click in and, and dive in some more. Um, there's one more that you put in here, though, uh, which is you know using video for developer relations. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like there's, there's, there's kind of a bigger story to that because like when I look, for example, at the way my kids learn, uh, you know, forget about the fact that the last year and a half they were you know, home and using video conferencing for, for learning. But I mean, so much of what they do is they go out and they try and find experts that it could be on YouTube or TikTok or it's wherever. Um, but they use it as much for communication as it does for learning. Like, what are you finding uh, in in developer relations where video uh, is is maybe is it a is it a better medium to to try and explain things? Do you find there's a different way people engage? Kind of give us some thoughts around what why why you put video for DevRel in there because I think I think there's a lot to to unpack there. I'm obsessed by it. 
how much time do you spend on YouTube a day? Um, for me, it's like between one to two hours a day. And I like I'm a fairly you know high uh, hard to reach audience. <laughs> and I think it's it's maybe a generational thing because I have heard feedback that you know people of a different generation don't like video as much. They rather read the docs, and that's fine. But I think it's just a huge white space and there's a lot of ways you can get creative about video and it's not about being the whole influencer with like clickbait thumbnails and stuff like that but just efficiently conveying information at extremely high bandwidth like (laughs) like right now when i do when i debug i'll I'll, uh, use this service called replay.io which actually is is kind of like loom but it but it also captures the whole stack of um of uh, you know the, the the call stack that I'm working on, and it sends it over to whoever I'm trying to debug with, and they can play back the video to reproduce the error that I saw, right? So I don't have to type out a whole essay just to show people like, no, I'm not crazy. Like this actually happened in your software, and here's proof. Uh, video proof is just so um, useful in so many things, like you know. Um, whether it's like teaching or just entertaining or whatever it is. And I think DevRel, in, in sort of the DevRel space, when people talk about DevRel, they're talking about a model that's kind of outdated, like, you know, the same the same way that we did DevRel 10 years ago, like doing blog posts and flying to conferences and doing talks. Um, no one's really innovated on that yet. And I think people who are pushing the boundaries on that are really getting an edge because they get a lot of mindshare in the new sort of native formats um, of 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 current sort of content creation. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree. I think it's, uh, it is something that, um, like you said, that it, it fills a space. There's a certain way of learning that goes with it. Um, it is probably a lot more work, but it is another one of those yeah. spaces. I think, I think you find that once you dive into it a little bit, you're like, Oh, that tool is really good for that. And that tool is really good for that. And I mean, there are some, there are some workflows and tool chains that you, you may have to pull together, but, uh, when you see people that do it really well, you're just like, oh, you know, like it just a light bulb just goes on. You're like, that made it so much easier for me. And it's cool to see. It's it's cool to see like you use the debugging example. Uh, I, I've got a, a tool I use for some of the sports stuff I do with, with, with folks that's like, it's essentially the same thing. Video is built into the debugging process and you can kind of marry the numbers with, with the video. And um, so, yeah, I, I totally agree there. I have a fun fact that I saw from somewhere, but I, so I can't really vouch for it's truthiness but uh, apparently tiktok just overtook google as the most visited website i heard that yeah i heard that yeah, oh wow yeah very, yeah very very addictive uh, algorithm video i'm telling you like short form long form any form people are not using it enough in business and the future is just you know more you know there's this whole there's also there's a whole trend of consumerization of, of enterprise right like you want to bring out the 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 trends that you see in in and in your personal life into the workplace. And for sure, people are consuming media in a totally different way than we did 10 years ago. And we should adapt our practices in DevRel to conform to that. So uh, the link that I put in here is from someone who's actually using Temporal, uh, but he's, he's actually working on this thesis. Milk video uh, is an idea of, you know, how can we sort of automate video creation for, for dev- developer relations and other marketing functions? Sean, that's awesome. Um, and one last comment on TikTok, and then I'll, I'll move on to the next topic. So <laughs> my my oldest daughter, um, I mean, she she loves to to cook and bake and do all all things like that. And with the Christmas holiday um, here recently, 
Yeah, we we she decided she was going to make an apple pie. And how did she do it? She went out to TikTok and got a recipe off of TikTok and made an apple pie off of a, you know, one or two minute video on TikTok. And oh, by the way, it was a fantastic apple pie. Um, <laughs> and so, so yeah, absolutely. I, I could completely see that. Um, and, and so, Sean, if I've, I'm going to change topics here and flip back to careers for a little bit. Yeah. Um, for the developers out there, you know, sometimes getting ahead is a little bit about getting visibility into the projects, right? And sometimes there's this, okay, there's personal projects at work, there's side projects, there's, you know, maybe public projects that may or may not be part of the day job. How have you personally, and how do you recommend others kind of find the right balance between all of them? Do you have any advice to give there? So public, uh, this is just about like, how much do you spend on your day job versus the side projects? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, or, 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 or yeah. even, you know, or even like we hear, you know, you'll see announcements that come out, oh, you know, Walmart has open sourced this thing or, you know, uh, Capital One has like, it doesn't always have to just be like, hey, I'm doing my side project and I hope my boss doesn't find out. But like even like in people's <laughs> day jobs, if you found, does it have to be the, the big press release where your company who's not known for doing open source, open sources something? Or like, is it... You know, is it just like being the, you know, being like the constant person in a meetup? Like if you found any way that people aren't just like, I'm a really good coder, but nobody knows what I'm doing. And so how do I Mm. I get visible Mm. kind of thing? Okay. I I feel like this is a bundled concept. Uh, So let me try to untangle it a little bit. Uh, So first of all, let me try to answer the hard question, which is uh, how much time to spend on the day job versus the side project. Uh, I have two stories to relate. The first is that temporal is actually an you know an open source project from Uber is probably one of the, one of Uber's most successful uh, open source project alumni, um, and basically I think at work you look for hard problems at the, at the place that you work at and you con- and you build the system so that it could be open sourced and it it may not ever be open source just because of your company's legal situation or your internal infrastructure or whatever, but. The, the fact that you're organizing it for open source means you ad- automatically adopt a lot of best practices, like have good documentation, you know, have a, have a really good CI/CD because people, anyone could just, you know, uh, throw in a PR at some point and you need to be able to do code reviews really well. Um, open source just forces a lot of good engineering best practices on you. And so if you work as though you were going about to open source it at any point in time, uh, I think that's a very good way to set it up. And I think more and more companies are embracing the fact that, okay, okay, uh, us having a very prominent or visible open source project actually is good for the company, good for the engineering, good for hiring. Um, So let's let's go ahead and do that. Um, uh, So, I mean, try to work it into your day job as much as possible. Obviously, I also am a fan of jobs that let you learn in public. Um, and I think that's that's as much of a cultural thing as it is a job description thing, um, because some cultures just don't uh, are not very welcoming of that. And you should uh, sort of weigh that impact on your life career potential, uh, earning potential accordingly. Um, <clears throat> the second uh, story I want to relate is actually um, a, about an interview that I had with uh, Anurag Goal, who is the CEO of Render.com. He, he was uh, employee number eight at Stripe. So like, as pretty much as early as possible as you could possibly get on uh, at Stripe, right? Like, and, and uh, that will that that is uh, going to get you a lot of equity um, at, at such a valuable company. How do you be employee number eight at Stripe? 
he worked on a side project that needed Stripe. And he, he looked around and he, he saw it early and he realized the need for it because he was about to be a user. And then he went for it and, you know, started talking to Patrick and, and John and started, you know, making contributions and feature suggestions until they just gave in an offer. And I think f- having a keen eye for those projects, I think is, is really helpful. Um, what the, the rule of thumb that I have heard from people is basically like a five to one ratio of work at day job versus work on side projects. And that can be spread out between like an intraday thing, like basically spend one or two hours a day, or if you want to bunch it up, uh, spending essentially Saturdays on, on the thing. Uh, so it, a lot of people, you know, they, they find the different ways to work it in, but I think that's the typical cadence that people do that sort of work in. Uh, and I think it's very beneficial if you, if your personal family situation can accommodate it. So that's the hard problem, right? And that's the, that's the, <laughs> um, the, the, the proportionment of time, which is always a, a, a difficult and challenging issue. The easy one is the marketing, uh, because that's my job. <laughs> uh, and, and that's very much um, a, a function of, to me, the the way that you get a cold start problem because it's it's always a it's always that's uh, I have a by the way I have a blog post about this called how to market yourself without being a celebrity because I think that's the main thing that people see as the hurdle for themselves they look at the people out there who have projects that they could they're like oh, it's not that great I could do better right you know uh, but they're only getting attention for it because they're already a celebrity you know. Um, and that's the excuse that you make for yourself because you're like you don't know how to get an audience for for your for your work. Um, I think the way to solve that cold start problem is to target hyper specifically to specific uh, people that would benefit from your work, right? Whatever, whatever it is, your open source library, your blog posts, your talk, whatever. Um, you send it to that to that person that you had in mind, and you say like, "This is, I, you know, I made this with you in mind. It, you said this thing, this specific thing in the past, and here's how I have, uh, have addressed it." In other words, do things that don't scale until it starts scaling, right? Um, have conversations instead of trying to stand up, stand up on your soapbox and shout to an empty room. That's never going to work. Seek people out individually until they start to recognize and trust you and start to spread your work for you. Um, and I think that's a very way, very nice way to get the at least the initial visibility going. Yeah, I think uh, that, I think that's I think that's fantastic. I think uh, that, that whole idea. <laughs> well, I, I think it, it boils down to the basic thing of like it's it's very easy to sort of like you said, jump on a soapbox and talk about you know whatever. At the end of the day, people are like, okay, are you going to do that for me? Or are you just telling me exactly. that I should go do it? Because I don't have a 25th or a 28th or a 30th <laughs> hour in the day. So, um, no, I think that's I think that's, I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. The, the way I put it is the, the, the topic that people most people are interested in is themselves. Like, what's in it for me, right? If you can answer that compellingly and grab attention for it, uh, then you're golden. Uh, yeah. if, if, you, if it's all about you and what you think and how, how you're greater than everyone else, I don't care. Right. Right. It's, and it's, and it's the difference. I mean, it's, it's always, you know, they, they say that's always the, that's always the best, it's always the best topic on a first date you know, let get the other person talking about themselves, but it, you know, it's, it's also the best way to get through, you know, meetings with clients. It's always the best way to, to meet new people. It's like, if they're just sitting there listening to you, as opposed to going, I'm showing interest in what you are, you have a problem space or interest in, uh, it, it is, yeah, it's way easier to make that connection. Any, yeah. Any, so I have a oh uh, go ahead, well. No, go ahead. In the in so uh, I have a community for my book, and in the community we called we actually we actually have an acronym for this. It's called P U W P D, P U W T P D, uh, and it's pick up what they put down. 
And that's the name of the essay that spawned this perspective. Basically, because I saw so many people, they so, they're very inspired by learning in public. They're very inspired by side projects. They work so hard on it. They put it out there and then it falls flat. And then they, they stop, they give up because they're like, oh, I tried it, it failed. And I'm, I'm like, of course it failed because you didn't build it with a specific person in mind. Um, so yeah, pick, pick up what the people put down. No, I like that. I used to, uh, so, so sort of side story. I used to, we used to, like one of the companies I worked for, we used to, we used to sponsor the, the media lab at, at MIT. And one of the Ooh. things they would do, which was, which is a really cool project, except that at the end of it, you would go, um, anyways, it's a long story, but you would go and they would have this sort of like big display week and you would show up and, and they would be like these, you know, brilliant PhD students or, you know, MIT mathematicians or whatever. And they would go here, I built this thing. And, and then you'd sort of look at the thing and you'd be like, but what does it do? And it was always this great this thing of like, but what does it do? And But it was exactly your point. Like so many of them were so great at building something that, you know, probably went on to do amazing stuff. But if you, but like getting over that first one-to-one person thing of like, but what does it do for me? Or why would I ever use it? Why would I care? I think is, is that it's sort of the equivalent of like getting the first dollar of, of revenue for your business or making the first profitable dollar. Like if you can't get over that first hurdle, it, it makes everything else really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, Aaron, we've been going for a while. I want to ask him, I want to ask John one last question because I don't want to take up all of his time. Um, any, any tips or tricks? So obviously a lot of what we're talking about today is makes this assumption that, um, a, you're, you're curious about things, you're willing to learn things you want to put in the time. Um, any tips or tricks, uh, that, that shortcut that a little bit or, you know, things that have accelerated your learning process that, um, you know, maybe aren't a complete shortcut, but just you found over and over again, you kind of go back to, to, to make things easier for you to learn or willing for sure willing to learn. Yeah. So uh, the standard answer that I'm going to give you a, a new answer today, because the standard answer I usually give for this this kind of question is that you should learn in public, right? And that's the essay that I'm best known for. Millions of developers have read it. Um, so you can go to swix.io slash LIP and check that out. Um, and I think that basically it's the, it's the principle of having a feedback loop that um, accelerates your learning and builds your network at the same time. Um, but the other insight that I've been having, and I haven't written anywhere about this, so this is the first time I'm articulating it, is that you should have skin in the game, right? Because if you're learning just in case, you're like, oh, it's, it's, it'll be nice to, to learn something. You're not going to stick with it because you don't care enough. But if your life depended on it, if your family member was like being held at gunpoint and, like, <laughs> and you had to learn the thing, you would learn the thing. Um, so how can you figure out how to get skin in the game, whether it's like through some commitment device of like, you know, by, uh, by a certain date, I'm going to have to uh, be able to do a specific skill, um, or you commit to a system, right? Um, every single day I'm going to, I'm going to spend one or two hours doing this. Um, I like a, a nice mix of systems and goals for learning. Um, but having that commitment device and skin in the game actually focuses your attention and forces you to learn, <laughs> Because yeah. otherwise, you know, you're gonna you're gonna just veg out in front of the TV or something. Yeah. No, Aaron, yeah. I, I think yeah. somewhere in there he's uh, he's 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 tapped into our uh, desire to to rebuild the website. Just uh, it's been <laughs> fair our, enough. Been yes. our ten year project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Someday, someday we're gonna get a new website. <laughs> Sean, this has been great. Um, like we mentioned at the top of the show, like we, we could probably go in in ten different directions and dive into stuff. Um, sometimes part of these shows are just introducing people to to really interesting people like yourself who have 
you know, a lot of experience, oh, a lot of space in this. So, um, you know, I, I hope folks got a lot out of this show, but more importantly, um, we're going to put a bunch of things in the show notes to, to dive into a lot of the work that you've been doing in different domains of this. So thank you so much for the time. Um, if, if anybody's interested in, uh, in kind of learning about all the things that you're doing, uh, just give us a, give us a couple of plugs for some of the places they can go and find good information. Oh yeah, sure. You can find me on on my website at swix.io, where I have all my essays uh, and my and little about with more links. Um, or you can find me on Twitter at swix. Excellent, excellent. We'll, we'll put all the stuff for learning in, in public and uh, coding community and all those in there as well. Aaron, uh, we're off to a, a good start for these first couple of uh, year aheads. I think uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have to keep raising the bar on them. You want to you want to wrap it up and take us home? Yeah, absolutely. And Sean, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really fascinating topics. And and I urge everyone too to go take a look at the show notes. Um, we will have all the links in, in there as well. Um, the the sites Sean just mentioned as well as some of the topics uh, and, and links to those. So go check that out. Uh, but as Brian mentioned, you know, we've got these, these uh, kind of look ahead shows going and we're right in the middle of it right now. And we certainly urge you to uh, continue uh, to listen in as well. And if you enjoy the show, please, please, please go ahead and give us a, a favorable rating wherever you get your podcast and, and tell a friend as well. And so on behalf of Brian and myself, thank you everyone for listening this week and we'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 